I appreciate uh, your being here and settling down to hear uh, a group of us discuss pediatric atopic dermatitis. I hope this will be a very useful part of your uh, meeting here in, in New Orleans. Uh, I would be uh, pleased to introduce first our panel. Uh, my name is Robert Sidbury, and I'm a pediatric dermatologist at Seattle Children's Hospital. Uh, and I'm uh, joined here on my left by Peter Leo. Uh, Peter is from Northwestern, where he's a clinical assistant professor. And unique among the three of us, Peter sees not only kids but adults as well. And I think that's an interesting perspective, even for a group of pediatricians, because part of our purview here tonight is to talk about some of the newer therapies that are available. And for a newer generation of patients, this is normal. For adult patients who've had atopic dermatitis all their life, they've pretty much given up on us. Uh, dermatologists have not helped them very much throughout their lifetime. And there's been an element of hopelessness with regard to the treatment of atopic dermatitis. And so Peter has told me when he'll see kids and their parents come with them, it's just a revelation for many of the parents to hear the things discussed with the children about what's available now that never was for them before. So uh, if you want Peter's perspective on, on that, please uh, feel free to ask. And uh, to my farther left, this is Dr. Wenis Tom. Uh, Dr. Tom is a clinical professor of dermatology and pediatrics at UCSD, Rady Children's. Uh, and the fellowship program director there in the, the uh, Division of Pediatric Dermatology. And the three of us together will uh, put together this program on some of the newer non-steroidal options for treating atopic dermatitis. These are our disclosures. I can speak to my own, which are essentially I'm a grant. Uh, I, I am a site for research for one of the medications which is being discussed here tonight, dupilumab. Um, Microse is a product which we will not discuss tonight. Uh, and I did one uh, advisory board for Pfizer specifically with regard to one of the adverse effects that we're going to talk about with regard to the product Crisobrol and that's stinging at the application site. And the advisory board I did was specifically to, to deal with how to address that. Uh, so that's the extent of my disclosures. This is a CME program, so uh, please complete all the things you need to complete. Please fill in the uh, questions that, gonna, that are going to follow this uh, slide, the pre-test questions. We'll have post-test post questions at the end. Uh, you've got uh, keypads in front of you, which uh, you can use to enter them. You've got evaluation forms, uh, which I'd love for you to turn at the end. Uh, and when those are turned in, you'll be emailed your certificate uh, in four to six weeks. If you have any questions throughout the program, there's uh, pieces of paper and pens there. Please write them down. Uh, and uh, all the questions, or at least as many as we can get to, will be addressed at the very end. Um, this program is provided by the North American Center for Continuing Medical Education, uh, an HMP company. And the program is supported by the educational grant from Pfizer. All of these slides are our own. We had no input from anyone. They were put together in the same background, so it all looks smooth and, and flows, but all of this was, was things that we individually put together for our sections with no input from anyone else other than each other. And here's our outline. Here's how we'll break things down. I'll kind of talk about what atopic dermatitis is. I won't dwell on it. Most of you gestalt this diagnosis when you see these patients. You see them every day. I'll tell you, I see nothing but kids and skin, and there are plenty of times I'm like, I'm not sure. 
if that's atopic dermatitis or psoriasis. So as, as knee-jerk as we sometimes make this diagnosis, uh, those of us who see a lot of it sometimes are, 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 are ill at ease making a diagnosis. Um, Dr. Tom will talk about how that diagnosis is formally made. Dr. Leo will then talk about non-pharmacologic approaches. Dr. Tom will then go with steroid-sparing pharmacologic options. And then I'll briefly mention the pipeline, and then we'll go back to our questions and open it up for your questions and maybe talk about some cases or two to highlight some points if, if you're interested in doing that. So this is a pediatric disease. You are the audience who we should be talking to. Um, do adults get atopic dermatitis? Is there adult onset atopic dermatitis? Sure, there is. But 90-plus percent of patients with this diagnosis are diagnosed by kindergarten. So it's a pediatric disease for sure. Um, depending on the prevalence study you, you look at, anywhere from 10 to 20% of the U.S. population suffers from atopic dermatitis. And this prevalence is increasing globally, certainly. And there are really four pillars of, uh, of, of issues here. There's dryness, there's inflammation, there's itch, and there's infection. And if you look at Dr. Leo's little, I don't know what that is, a tetrahedron or whatever that shape is there at the bottom, that's sort of a treatment tetrahedron to match those four pillars, right? So you've got anti-inflammatory treatments, things like topical corticosteroids or first line. We'll talk about others as well. Moisturization, that's foundational for every patient with atopic dermatitis. And I'll tell you, one of the things we're running into with these newer treatments that work really well is patients are forgetting that they still need to moisturize. These are not replacements for the foundational elements of taking care of atopic dermatitis. They just make everything a little bit better. Antipyretics, things that help with the itch, and then antibiotics when relevant. That question of allergies, we could spend the entire program talking about food allergies and eczema. And we'd have a fascinating discussion, and at the end, you would ask me, are food allergies related to atopic dermatitis, or are they not? And my answer then would be yes. Uh, it's just too much. It's too difficult. It's too confusing. We've learned a lot. There's a lot we need to know more. That one sentence there is the title of a paper in 1995, which I think captures it all. Is atopic dermatitis a skin, skin, an allergic disease or is it a disease with allergies? That's the question. Do the allergies cause the disease or are they just along for the ride? And I'll tell you, some patients it's one and some patients it's the other. Uh, so that's something we won't have a lot of time to talk about, but it's a fascinating topic. It's become even more fascinating with the whole peanut story and the LEAP paper and the idea that maybe we've been doing it backwards all along and restricting peanut when we really should be, have been introducing it early. Um, the idea that you get sensitized and you become allergic to things if you're exposed to the allergen through your skin, but if you're exposed to the allergen through your gut, you develop tolerance. It's not quite that simple, but that's really the idea, and it's really a fascinating topic. We'll briefly touch on the impact of quality of life. If that looks like apples and oranges to anyone, comparable in impact on quality of life to cystic fibrosis, to diabetes... If you don't take care of patients with moderate to severe atopic dermatitis, that does look like apples and oranges, and it seems really patently ridiculous. If you think about the, the worst patients with atopic dermatitis you've ever seen, if you think about the degree to which they itch, the degree to which they lose sleep, if you think about the idea that you don't have a cure for them when they ask, how are you going to help me? Will they grow out of it? Maybe. Can we make this go away? Maybe. When is it going to? I don't know. It's constant. If you think about ever having had poison oak or poison ivy, 
and you itched for two or three days how annoying that was, and that's 24-7, well, then those sort of quality of life impact comparative statements and studies make a little bit more sense. Natural history, try your best not to say, oh, your child's just going to grow out of it. They may. I never say that because we've already said that there are plenty of adults with atopic dermatitis. I guarantee you each one of them heard they were going to grow out of it. So I think that's setting them all up for false hope. So the disease evolves. The disease changes. It evolves before parents' eyes from like the facial extensor-based dermatitis in an infant to the more flexural-based dermatitis in that same child three or four years later. So it evolves. It changes but it doesn't always go away. I had eczema when I was a baby. I haven't had a rash in since I was a baby, practically. A little bit longer than that, but not much. I still can't put a wool sweater on. It makes my skin itch. My skin remains constitutionally hyper-irritable. That you don't grow out of. So just be careful with that language. So we won't spend a lot of time on this because this is purely to sort of paint the picture. Genetic factors, and you've got all these slides in your little book if you want. Please take pictures all you want, but they're all there for you if you care to have them. Genetic factors, the filaggrin mutation, is I, I liken to caulk in the skin. And many, not all, but many patients with atopic dermatitis have diminished filaggrin, diminished caulk in the skin. Moisture gets out, so you get dry. Allergens, in, infections, microbes get in, you get sensitized, you get infected. So that fundamental genetic problem is a huge issue for many patients. Are you going to grow out of that mutation? Probably not. Environmental factors, hyperirritability. I mentioned wool. Um, patients uh, can list many things that make their skin worse in most cases. And immunologic factors are sort of the root of the problem. I should have warned you, a painful slide alert. Here's the painful slide. I show you this only because um, we're going to focus on a couple Active players here, IL-4 and IL-13, are the chemical targets of dupilumab, the new systemic medication that's been approved for atopic dermatitis down to 12 years of age. That is why these medic medications are, seem to be more effective. They're new, so as pediatric providers, we are all very cautious, and we need to see medications prove themselves over time. But these, this has been approved down to 12 years of age now. Our site at Seattle Children's is studying kids. We've got, we're in the open label extension down to six. I think both of these guys as well. And, and that medication is being looked at down to six months of age. So the data is going to be there, um, and we'll see if it proves to be as exciting as it seems. So is atopic dermatitis a systemic disease? You've probably heard of this term, the atopic march. Food allergies and eczema as a baby, asthma as a child, hay fever as an adult. Some kids just march through that throughout their lives and get all three. The idea, the analogy with psoriasis is you've all seen patients with psoriasis, right? You don't think twice in knowing that, you know, some of these kids might develop arthritis, psoriatic arthritis. So you know this chronic skin disease can have systemic inflammation. Well, atopic dermatitis seems to be very similar. And we've learned over time that the number of associations is much broader than this. It's much broader than just sleep loss, as we've talked about. I'm going to show you this next slide, and the font is very small, and it's small for a reason. I don't want you to be able to read it. I want you to realize there are a lot of things that have been associated with atopic dermatitis now. And you need to know this not because you need to list all of these for some pretest survey or post-test survey. It's because your parents 
are going to read about these. They're going to Google these. They're going to be, oh my gosh, you're kidding. Lymphoma is associated with atopic dermatitis. And you're going to be able to tell them, no, the data's just not there yet. That was a big database that had this association. We need to wait and see on that, right? On the other hand, they're going to say, you're kidding. ADHD is associated with atopic dermatitis. Well, now there have been studies in multiple genetic populations across the globe that suggest, yes, that that fidgety child in front of you, that child whose parents are saying they don't concentrate in school, may not be fidgety and not concentrating at school because of sleep loss and itch. They may have a separate diagnosis that's treated differently. So think about that in particular. The rest uh, we'll either talk about or take a wait-and-see approach. The microbiome and atopic dermatitis, it seems like you can't open any journal in any field without the microbiome being the explanation. Uh, I think it's the, today's vitamin D. Um, it, it's just everything seems to be associated with the microbiome. And, you know, it, it's pretty darn compelling, the, the information. Um, the most obvious way that the microbiome it, it kind of resonates with you guys, with things I imagine many of you, just out of curiosity, how many of you incorporate bleach baths in your treatment of atopic dermatitis? Yeah, a lot of you. They're, why, right? That we, we think that's microbiome related. So that's the sort of gross uh, look at this idea but boy, there's just a ton of cool stuff, which I'm not even going to go through here. The idea that Staph epi, oh, it's just a commensal. Oh, that's nothing. That doesn't mean anything. Staph epi makes antimicrobial peptides, which I liken to sort of nature's Bactroban. So Staph epi helps control Staph aureus. Rosiomonas is a gram negative in the skin. There's a trial going on now where you spray on rosiomonas, you spray on a gram-negative bacteria on the skin of patients with eczema, and their eczema gets better. It's like fecal transplants for the skin. It's crazy. <laughs> so I really think this story is evolving, and it's something to pay attention to. And I'm just going to skip on through that because it's just too much. That's the, that's the story. So it's all in your slides, the gram-negative bit. It's all there, but I don't want to dwell on it anymore. The only thing I'll say here is... You've seen many patients with psoriasis. We already established that, darn it. Um, and you see patients with atopic dermatitis. I bet many of your patients with atopic dermatitis get staph superinfection, right? You see that all the time. That's why we do bleach baths. How many of your patients with psoriasis get staph superinfection? Not so many. And yet they're both chronic T-cell mediated barrier disrupted skin diseases. Why one and not the other? Well, this was a New England Journal paper back in 2002 that told us exactly why. If you biopsy atopic skin, you see that there's diminished or absent antimicrobial peptides. There we are again. That idea of the sort of nature's bacteria that just sits on your skin and fights off infection, there's not enough of it if you have eczema. On the other hand, in psoriasis, it's normal or upregulated. So we've got a beautiful reason to explain why one gets infected and one doesn't. That cutaneous immune system that's disrupted in atopic dermatitis isn't just a problem with staph. You see them, patients with warts all the time, with molluscum all the time. You see patients with viral infections. This is a patient of mine with Coxsackie virus, so-called hand, foot, and mouth disease, only two to A6 Coxsackie, not A16. So we oftentimes call it hand, foot, and mouth, and butt disease because they get a bot on their backside. And that just the idea that it's way more than just the hands, the feet, and the mouth, as you can clearly see here. The tricky thing here is this is a patient with these punched out little erosions on the skin. Whenever a dermatologist hears punched out erosions on the skin, we worry about eczema herpeticum, and so should you. 
So both of these things occur more often in patients with atopic dermatitis. How can you tell the difference? Well, with eczema, with this, this process, the child gets sick, usually a fever or a prodrome, and then all of these changes sort of occur in phase at the same time. More likely with this child, there's a point source. Perhaps the mom or the dad had a cold sore, and then the child got a lesion right here, and then it spread out from there. And so that sort of history can be a clue to try and distinguish these two, but there's no substitute for appropriate testing. So the bottom line is atopic dermatitis patients are more susceptible to these infections, things to watch out for. So I'm going to pass it from there to Dr. Tom, who will flush out some of these points further. Hi, good evening. Okay, so just like Dr. Sidberry mentioned, you know, most of us, we all diagnose atopic dermatitis or eczema just by gestalt, right? You're looking at a really itchy, uh, inflamed skin, lots of times cracks and scale and that too. But sometimes we do need to differentiate this condition from other, others that can mimic it. Um, and what can we use to, to, to make that diagnosis? Well, it still remains a clinical one. There is no lab test that's helpful um, to confirm it. But there are some criteria that you can use to follow, and it may be a little bit easier to see it in the little booklet because um, I know the, the font's a little bit smaller on this. So the gold standard has been criteria that was formulated by Dr. Tanefin and, and Reika um, over at OHSU and in Germany. But because they were quite wieldy, our Academy of Dermatology actually you know, pulled together and had a set of, 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 of guidelines to help with it. So the features that you definitely need to have needs to be paritis or itch, okay? You need to have eczema lesions that are in a typical morphology and age-specific patterns. And as you can see here in the kind of photos that we, we've shown, really typical usually in your infants is more diffuse, inflamed, uh, scaly red plaques. Uh, a lot of times can involve the scalp, a lot of times more the extensor areas. And then as kids start to grow and they get a little bit bigger, there tends to be more of a flexural predilection, right? So the antecubital fossa, popliteal fossa, a lot of times hands and feet, and you'll see more, you know, crusting and lichenification and thickening of the skin because of the, the, the scratching that's grown on. And then you also need to have a chronic or relapsing history. So sometimes early on, I think one of the biggest ones we have a hard time differentiating is seborrheic dermatitis, right, or cradle cap early on in, in infants. They have scaly skin also. They can be involved in the body in addition to the scalp. How do you tell? Well, part of it is, is that subderm usually gets better, right, over a few months. They're usually not as itchy. It usually can, can resolve with some... Um, topical antifungals, maybe mild topical steroids, but usually doesn't persist versus atopic dermatitis, as we know, usually will go on for at least uh, most often months to years. Um, some of the other important features, so you don't have to have them, but they can help, is early age of onset. As it was already mentioned by Dr. Sidberry, the vast majority uh, do uh, develop the disease in the first uh, two to five years of life. And then if there's a strong family history as well of atopy, so other members who have atopic dermatitis or asthma or allergic rhinitis. If you see um, elevated IgE levels, that can help, although it's not necessary, um, and then xerosis as well, too. Um, some of the other things that you might see, and this, was, I believe, was one of the questions, you might see some atypical vascular responses that can help. So it's a lot of times they'll have uh, some pallor in the face. You can see what's called white dermatographism. So as opposed to typical dermatographism, when you scratch somebody's back and you see a wheel and it's pink, here you actually see it's, it's, when you scratch it, it's actually white-colored, and the red is in the surrounding background. Um, you can also see some other uh, 
clinical findings that are similar uh, with dry skin, such as uh, ichthyosis uh, or fish scale or keratosis pilaris, which are the rough bumps that you see on the outer parts of the arms and thighs and sometimes um, buttocks and other areas. And then they can have other air, uh, lesions that look like itch too, like parietal lesions as well. And then you want to look and make sure, like I said, there's nothing else that would mimic it um, uh, that, that, that you need to exclude um, to show that it's, it's not atopic dermatitis. Scabies is often, as we all see, very itchy, but usually what you see crusted nodules, you'll see scabs. Obviously, you're looking for other family members um, that are affected, and usually they're pretty bad within weeks, so you're not going on for years with this. Um, sometimes contact dermatitis, so you want to look for patterns. You know, are there sharp cutoffs, like at the neck or in the diaper area? Usually this is not affected with atopic derm, but if you're seeing something in the diaper area, you want to check, could they possibly be allergic to something or irritant to something in the diaper area? And then psoriasis sometimes as well can mimic it, but usually this tends to have thicker scale. So most of the time, if you're going to do testing, you know, parents always want to know, is there a way to establish it? And as we mentioned, there isn't a way to establish, but they are, can run tests to basically exclude other diagnoses. So to look for allergic contact dermatitis, you can consider patch testing if they're older enough. You can do a KOH to rule out tinea, for example, um, and looking at that. But, you know, in addition to diagnosis, we don't yet have a reliable marker um, to either make the diagnosis or determine severity. Although there are some cytokines, some proteins, you know, circling the skin like um, TSLP, which is thymic stromolymphoprotein, that might become more available and might help in the future to help us to kind of better tell, you know, who may be more severe. In terms of risk factors for atopic dermatitis, it was already mentioned you know, that genetics definitely plays a role. So if you have one, patient, one parent who has atopic dermatitis, then the risk of their children uh, is, is about, they have a 50-50 chance of the child developing atopic dermatitis. Now, if both parents have atopic dermatitis, and sorry, unfortunately, there's about 80% chance of developing it. So they're pretty, they're pretty affected if both parents have atopic dermatitis. And maternal history does tend to matter a little bit more and play a little bit more of an influence um, on risk. Now, Dr. Sidbiri talked a lot already a, a bit about, you know, the skin barrier and the role of the of flagrant. But just to highlight a little bit more, as he mentioned, flagrant is probably one of the, the biggest genetic factors, although it doesn't account for everything, that can increase susceptibility to atopic dermatitis. And as he said, it's sort of the, the mortar around the bricks in the, in, the, in the keratinocytes, the skin cells that we have in the outer layer of the skin. So when it's broken, when it's defective, when there's mutations in it, you're going to have more early onset eczema, more severe disease. They're going to have a tendency for more likelihood of getting sensitized to allergens and also to have increased risk for infections as well. And part of it is, like I said, it's part of the skin barrier. So when this, this protein is, is not functioning correctly, things are going to get through much more easily. Flagrant also plays a really important role because it's also a, a part of what we call natural moisturizing factors. So it's part of, uh, of a part in our skin that actually naturally keeps some of the fluids uh, and, and, and uh, water from being lost in the area. So when it's mutated, you'll have that aspect affected as well, as well as affecting skin pH too. It also helps to kind of protect us as well uh, against infections and, and the effects of staph toxins. So it's multiple ways when this protein's hit that you can be affected. But this is only a part of it, the story, because as people have started to do genotyping and looked, what we found is that a lot of kids who do have severe atopic dermatitis, they may not have mutations in this protein. 
Um, and about 40 to 60% of those who do have the mutations don't actually have atopic dermatitis. So there certainly seems to be a lot more going on besides this, although, like I said, if it is present, it certainly has a, has, has a fair predictor factor. So as we've started to become much more sophisticated with genetics and being able to, to type patients, we've learned that there are definitely other proteins in the barrier that's involved, um, like tight junction proteins, other proteins that mimic filigrans, ceramides, which are some of the lipids in there, and then as well as some of the proteins proteins that kind of break down these products and put them all together. But as a whole, I just want to emphasize that put together, what we've learned is that the skin barrier is really important, and an intact skin barrier from early on is really important. There was this, uh, more than one study that's shown that even in a two-day-old, if you look at how much water loss they have as a result of, of skin barrier defects versus normal, the, the more water loss they had early, the higher the likelihood that they had a risk for atopic dermatitis by a year of age. So this shows that, you know, early skin barrier defects can predispose kids to developing atopic dermatitis. Um, what are some of the other known risk factors? So besides, like I said, family history and the flagrant mutations, some of the uh, other factors have shown some association, but we still don't really know, you know, what's the effect, what role they play. For example, having higher birth weight seems to be associated with increased risk um, for AD, black rice, higher levels of parental education, urban living, um, being in daycare environment, cats as opposed to dogs, and then climate areas where there's less humidity, uh, higher latitude also tends to have increased risk. And then there's been obviously a lot of work, and I'm sure your parents also ask you about, you know, what can we do in terms of trying to lessen risk uh, uh, for, for children? And so what the studies have shown is that, you know, these following things, changes that are uh, made have not seemed to decrease the risk for atopic dermatitis. One is type of birth delivery, so C-section versus uh, vaginal delivery doesn't seem to have mattered. The timing of solid food introduction hasn't mattered. Um, altering maternal or infant diet other than a few studies that have shown that sometimes for high-risk infants, maybe hydrolyzed protein formula, formulas could help a little bit, um, or probiotic supplementation can help a little bit. As a whole, we have not seen a big difference by altering either mom's or the child's diet. Um, and then the same thing for household smoking. So why else do we care about atopic dermatitis? Well, this was a bit alluded to. Besides the other comorbidities, there's also a, what we've known to be the case for a lot of kids is there's what we call the atopic march. And that's that a lot of times with kids, they'll first start off with atopic dermatitis, and then later on they can develop food allergies, and then they can develop allergic rhinitis and asthma. And some also develop what's called eosinophilic esophagitis as well. So what we've learned is that how severe the skin is, how chronic the skin is, that's actually correlated with an increased risk for developing those other conditions. So if kids have mild um, atopic dermatitis, only about 20% of these kids will develop asthma versus if they have more severe skin disease, more than 60%, so almost two-thirds of them will develop asthma over time. And based on animal models and other studies um, that have been done now, the thinking is that um, you can actually be sensitized um, via allergens that get through the skin. And as a result, you can sensitize it, uh, your airways as well, and so you can develop asthma. So this becomes another part. It's not true for every child, but it certainly makes us also want to think about why we need to control the skin and treat the skin better it's to try to prevent these other conditions. Um, and then lastly, 
like you said, going back to you know the big big question a lot of parents ask: Is there a way to prevent? Um, as I told you, you know, altering things in the uh, uh, pregnancy period as well as in the early infancy periods have not shown a lot of data. There's been a little bit of data for use of probiotics to try to prevent uh, atopic dermatitis development. The results have been pretty mixed in the randomized control trials, but there are a few more recent studies using lactobacillus hominis and that too that have shown a little bit of positive data for prevention. So that's something that you can you know talk to parents about. The other big thing, and as I alluded to then, is well, what about if we do things for the skin barrier early on? So studies are underway right now to try to look at, at this concept. Can we actually change it? This was a study done up actually in Oregon um, by, a, by a colleague of our Simpson, and he used, like I said, an emollient um, and petrolonum in, in newborns who are at high risk. So they had either a parent or a sibling who already had atopic dermatitis, um, and then he had them start using a moisturizer um, the first week of life soon as they were born. So it was a small study. There were 22 kids enrolled, 20 that made it through, but only 15% of those who used you know, emollients proactively from the start developed atopic dermatitis. And when they compared it kind of the historical data, this was much lower to you know, the 30 to 50% that they would expect. But this is, like I said, comparing with retrospective data. So right now ongoing, there is a uh, much larger study between here and Europe where they're actually called the BEEP study where they're looking at barrier enhancement for eczema prevention where they're letting parents choose between like sunflower seed oil, a double base, a soft paraffin oil for 24 weeks and then trying to look and see is there a difference in terms of the rates of developing atopic derm. So hopefully we'll see some, some data soon to see if we can actually make some difference in development. Okay, so I'll leave it now to our, our colleague to discuss the next part. So we've had a great introduction about the disease, the impact of the disease on patients and their families, and that brings us to the next step, which is what can we do about it? How can we help? And I'd like to talk a little bit about some of the non-pharmacologic things, uh, kind of admixed with some of the pharmacologic things we can do. I talk about these three great hurdles when we're treating this condition, and I think this is true for a lot of chronic conditions, but the three things we have to do for our patients. First, we have to get them clear. That's the first step, and those are the ones that keep me up at night when they call me in a week or two and they say, you know, we've been doing what you said and we're, we're not better. And you're like, uh-oh, that's bad. We couldn't even get you clear. That's usually not the problem, though, for atopic dermatitis. Usually we're able to get people cleared up. It's that second hurdle that's the problem, keeping them clear safely. And the classic conundrum is they call and they say, hey, you know, you said don't use this medicine all the time. Maybe you gave them a topical corticosteroid. You said, you know, use this for a little bit. Don't use it all the time, and we'll see you back in a month or so. But they say, as soon as we stop, it flares right back up. We're putting it on, and, and we know we're not supposed to do it all the time, but what am I supposed to do? As soon as we stop, it's flaring again. So we're not being safe about keeping them clear. And then the third part is, can they keep it up? And this is a problem, especially for, I think, the older kids, the teenagers, and families kind of get this burnout phase, where it's like, maybe they're keeping it up safely for a while, but then it takes a huge toll. It's expensive. It's time-consuming. It sort of can really, really uh, take over your life if you're constantly thinking about your skin, constantly having to put moisturizers on. I've had families scream at me because I've broken their washing machine from all the heavy moisturizers that they're washing on the clothes. It's ruined things. So this can have a huge impact. 
in general, for the mild cases that, you know, we, we see these, and these are awesome. These are great cases where it's very mild. You can easily say, use this when you need it, and you're fine. And when you don't need it, you're okay. So that's really not what we're talking about. You know, there are those cases where they can use something mild and they'll get better. It's really for as we get a little bit more in that moderate and severe range, or the mild cases that may look mild, but are at, functionally or actively acting more moderate in that they're persistent. So those are those cases where they always need it or when we're not seeing improvement. And of course, we know within this is the failure to adhere to the regimen. That adherence is really tough. It takes some discipline for the family. A lot of times we'll see patients who are being undertreated. We're nervous about stuff or they're nervous. Sometimes we even get undermined by family, friends, and pharmacists too. Pharmacists sometimes will say at the, at the point of sale, they'll say, wait, you're going to put this on the baby? And the parents are like, well, yeah, I saw a dermatologist or I saw my pediatrician. They said, you know, for the eczema, I wouldn't put that on the baby's face. It's like, well, that's where the eczema is. But sometimes the family just then says, oh, I don't think it's safe. And it's really tough. We get undermined. And then, of course, we have real side effects and perceived side effects that we have to balance. There is a beautiful guideline document that came out of Europe just this past year, and I love it. Um, they kind of do this nice stair-step function, and they talk about what is the baseline of therapy. So the things that we kind of should do for everybody, even the mildest cases. And that's going to be good education, because that's important. I want our patients to understand as best they can all these components, that it's a skin barrier problem, that it's an immune problem with inflammation, that there are the associated allergies. We have to spend a little bit of time explaining them. We want to do moisturizers. We talked about that. That's super important to protect the skin barrier, to create a false barrier too. We can actually seal it up when it's broken down by putting an emollient on the skin. We also want to make sure they're avoiding things that they know will trigger them. So maybe it's going to be wool shirts. Maybe it's going to be a fragrancy product. Maybe it's going to be a certain kind of soap or cleanser. And for some patients, controversial, it could be maybe a food or something in their diet. And we have to be really careful about that because we have families who basically stop feeding the children, hoping to find that one allergen and the kids are not thriving and falling apart and their eczema is still bad. And it's like, I think we can let go of the food. But if we know something is triggering it, for sure we want to avoid it. Okay, the next step is topical corticosteroids. They're fantastic. They're inexpensive. They've been around for more than 50 years. They work incredibly reliably. And when used correctly, they're pretty safe. We know we can get by with using our topical corticosteroids. Little pulses, maybe up to a week, maybe up to two weeks. I think in certain situations, that'd be fine. But my real dream is that we use them for a little bit, get the skin better, and then take a break. And I think if we do that, and a good rule of thumb about topical corticosteroids is about half the time in a month. So if we're going to use it for a few days on, a few days off, that's fine. A whole week on, then I want a week off. Or if you're going to need it for two full weeks, it's really a mess, then I kind of want two weeks off after that so that your aggregate time in the month is about half time or better than that. I mean, the best cases are where they come back and say, yeah, we used it for three days. We haven't touched it since. He's been fine. Then we're in great shape. The scary part is when they say, yeah, we weren't able to stop. You know, we've, since we've seen you five weeks ago, six weeks ago, we've needed it every single day. So that's no good. So we can do that reactive therapy when we can. When it's harder to do the reactive therapy, we are lucky that we have our non-steroidal agents. And there really are only three options right now in the United States. There's tacrolimus, pimicrolimus, and chrysoboral. And they're all interesting because they're non-steroids. They all have a good anti-inflammatory and anti-itch effect. My honest opinion is that none of them can really replace steroids for most patients because they're all a little bit weaker than the kind of steroids we have. We have a whole range of potency of steroids, but they are awesome guys to help 
keep the steroids away. Once we get things better for most patients or for mild patients, you can even potentially avoid the steroids. But as we get in that more moderate group, we can use our steroids for a little and then use those to help prevent it or at the first sign of a flare-up, we can get on top of it. And then as we get higher up, we have other things that we would use more of a, a proactive approach, usually with sacrolimus, a non-steroidal that will say, okay, you're having so much trouble even when your skin is clear, Two days a week, I want you to put it on the hot spots to prevent. That's not an FDA-approved way to use it, but that is part of the guidelines in Europe and something that I try to do for my more, my more moderate patients who are getting more trouble. And then our, for our severe patients, we have a lot of big gun options. We can hospitalize them. We have our systemic immunosuppressant agents that we've traditionally used. And now we have our first new biologic agent that is more specific, that dupilumab. Now, one of the things that's fascinating about these inflammatory cytokines, IL-4 and IL-13, we heard that mentioned, we saw that in the cartoon, they're amazing because not only are they inflammatory cytokines, they're sending this message to make inflammation, which we've known for a while, but one of the papers that really blew my mind over a decade ago was this one, where they showed not only is it an inflammation signaler, it turns out that in the presence of inflammation, this particular type, your body actually stops making filaggrin you decrease production of filaggrin. So you functionally become barrier deficient, even if your filaggrin was normal. And when I read this, I thought, oh my gosh, this is, this is amazing. This is the crux of the whole problem. Because even if you started out with normal skin barrier, now you have inflammation, you have a leaky barrier, what I like to call leaky skin. And this is interesting because these two cytokines sit in the middle of it. They're driving both inflammation and itch, but also the skin barrier problem. What does that mean to me as a clinician? It means this. Moisturization is key for all of our patients. So even if their filaggrin gene was normal, even if they're like, I don't really have dry skin, it's like, you do now. When you have inflammation, we know you're functionally deficient, and it actually bears out beautifully. In this study, you couldn't ask for a better inverse correlation. The more emollients patients use, the better their disease got decreased severity. And this really works. A lot of times when people come and shadow me, they're kind of like rolling their eyes. They're like, all you do is cheerlead for people to put on moisturizer. That's not sexy or interesting at all. And I'm like, I know it's not glamorous, but it really works that getting people to do that and getting the good moisturizer that they'll like and actually use, it makes a huge difference. You know, it's, it's amazing, even though it doesn't sound like it should. One of the big questions that comes up a lot is what about bathing, right? We know there's some people that say, oh, bathe very rarely, maybe once a week, don't bathe because it's bad for the skin. Other people say bathe more frequently. What's the truth? Well, I could tell you, we don't really know. There's not any great answer on this. Uh, the data is a mess. So when I sat on the guideline committee for the allergy group, some people had really strong opinions, but I'm like, okay, show me the evidence. And then crickets, right? Nobody had any evidence. So there's very little. But a really nice paper from Dr. Larry Eichenfield and his, uh, apparently one of his residents a few years ago, put this together, which is really nice. And what this shows is they did these different regimens where they had people bathe and not put on a moisturizer, had people bathe, put on a moisturizer, had people just put on a moisturizer. My take home point is that if you bathe and you moisturize right after, I think the net effect is pretty positive. I think you can kind of super hydrate the skin and lock it in. If you bathe and don't put on any moisturizer, I think that's pretty bad. So it kind of makes sense. In the olden days, I think people didn't have great moisturizing options, so like, don't bathe because you're doing damage. But now we have really good moisturizers, so I think if we can get people to do that, I think the net effect is positive for daily bathing. And what I think also you get when you do a daily bath is you super hydrate the skin, you get people in a routine to put on their medicines. A lot of my patients probably only do their stuff once a day after their shower or their bath, but you also wash off those irritants, allergens, and 
different pathogens, I think you can actually decrease some of the load of irritants and allergens on the skin by bathing. So my net take-home point is daily bathing is good so long as we use a gentle cleanser. We don't want to use a harsh soap, and then we moisturize right after we soak and seal. One of the most powerful tools in our toolbox is the wet wrap. Have people ever used a wet wrap? Has anybody tried them before? A couple of hands. Yeah, it's definitely the next level up. We would really only use this for somebody who's struggling, particularly it's that first failure. We can't get them clear. They can't clear the first hurdle. They come back and they're like, gosh, I'm using the steroid and it's not much better. You can have the patient take their shower or their bath put on their cortisone, usually this could be a low or even a mid-potency corticosteroid, something like maybe triamcinolone is one I use a lot, because only gonna do it for a short time. They put that on, then they take a damp layer of clothing. So for a baby, usually it's a onesie. We'll put it in warm water, wring it out really well, just a little bit damp, I don't want them uncomfortable. For an older kid or an adult, we might use like a like an undershirt, you know, a long sleeve t-shirt or even long underwear, wring it out, put the damp layer on, and then a nice warm dry layer. For the little guys, maybe like a flannel set of a onesie or or heavier pajamas that are really protective for adults, a sweatshirt and sweatpants, and they can either sleep with that on all night long. It pushes the medicine and the moisture into the skin. It also seals the skin in a wonderful way. They can't scratch and rub because they're kind of coated in this wet, sticky thing. It really protects their skin. And it is, it's amazing. It's, it's absolutely miraculous. We can make some really bad cases turn around. This was a little guy that we were seeing. He was using a class one steroid, clobetazole, which is really, in my opinion, too strong for a little guy with eczema. It's just not right. But it still wasn't budging, this kind of numular pattern of eczema. In just a couple of days of wet wraps, the mom called me, said it's amazing, with a much lower potency steroid. So we turned the entire environment around, turned the skin around just in a few days where he had been using this super strong medicine for weeks. One of the other things that's really interesting about wet wraps is they can be adapted to the face, and it's very tricky to treat the face, but one of the things from a friend of ours, Vivian Shi, who's a great dermatologist in Arizona, she wrote this paper talking about how you can actually use rice paper, dry rice paper, which you can get at a grocery store, and you can soak it and do your medicine and put it on, and it kind of creates like a, like a soft little second layer that will help protect and act similarly, because otherwise it's hard to put gauze or anything on your face. I do have some patients who put on like a balaclava, one of those little ninja masks, and they use it that way, and that can help, but it's a little tricky, and this is a really nice little pearl, super cheap. You can get a huge packet of these at, you know, at, a, at a grocery store. So anti-inflammatory treatment really is the mainstay, and our topical steroids are so important that it's going to be really hard to knock them out. One of the key things about this is that we want to pick the right strength, and we want to try to pick a vehicle that's comforting. So in general, ointments are going to be better than creams, which are going to be better than lotions, better than gels. So we don't want to go into those lighter weight things. Even though they feel better, they can be more irritating. They have more preservatives. Ointments are a good choice when you can. The only time I would deviate from that if the patient feels like it's not going to be comfortable on their skin and they might not use it. Some people say, I'm not going to put something greasy on my face. I don't want to look shiny. Then I might go to a cream. But otherwise, ointment is going to be the default. And we talked a little bit about the timing of that. Can we use it briefly? One of the things I just want to put out there is that phototherapy is something we can do, and this is something that is powerful and very much underutilized. It's where they come into the office a few times a week and get what kind of looks like a medical tanning booth, but it's filtered in a way that it's much gentler, much safer than a tanning booth. It's not the same thing. It's UVB light that's filtered here. And the problem with it is it works pretty well. Maybe 70 or 75% of our patients it can help, but it's time-consuming and it's expensive. It's a logistical thing where you have to get a family to come in you know, multiple times per week and spend some time at the office. 
What about the dilute bleach baths? Well, they're interesting, and uh, Dr. Sibri brought them up a little bit ago. I still use them as well, but I'll, I'll put this out there that a recent paper talked about the fact that they may not be so helpful. This was a paper that suggested, I think kind of a snooty conclusion, that a four-week, twice-weekly regime of dilute bleach baths may not be useful in reducing Staph aureus colonization. Instead, regular water baths would be a more efficacious alternative for atopic dermatitis. So there is a little bit of controversy happening in the bleach baths, and one of the thoughts we're realizing is that the way we use them at the dilution we're using actually probably isn't directly antimicrobial. It probably doesn't kill Staph, but it seems to have some anti inflammatory effect and some anti-itch effect, and it may be modulating the, the microbiome more generally. It might not directly kill it, but it may have some other effects. So we're still learning. It's sort of an interesting, interesting point. One of my favorite non-pharmacologic treatments is coconut oil, which gets laughed at sometimes because so many alternative people like it, but it's really interesting. Coconut oil is fascinating because uh, it's actually been studied in this context, and it has quite a robust anti bacterial effect against staph. In fact, in one study, they found that it decreased staph aureus colonization by 95% in patients who, had, who were growing staph in, in the presence of atopic dermatitis versus only about 50% in the control group that was using olive oil. So I actually do encourage my patients to use it in certain situations, especially if we're worried that they're overusing other antibacterial agents or if we feel like they're needing frequent courses of oral antibiotics, which some of my patients do. They get frankly, infected over and over and over. And I'm thinking, boy, this is your third course, your fourth course of cephalexin or something like that. That's not good for anybody. We're breeding resistance. We're putting them through all this stuff. We're beating the heck out of their own microbiome. So this is a time where Mother Nature maybe can help us. And we heard a little bit about the probiotics, and I, I totally agree with what Dr. Tom said, that they probably have some efficacy in preventing disease, but very modest effect on existing atopic dermatitis. So this might be something you could say if, if you're with the older kid who has bad eczema and the mom is expecting and says, anything I can do, you could say, well, you could consider trying a probiotic to hopefully decrease the risk a little bit. But we don't know really the correct strains. We don't know the correct dosage. We, there's so many questions, but the ones most common cited are lactobacillus rhamnosus GG. Unfortunately, that's one that's fairly easy to get and over-the-counter. Dr. Sibiri also, uh, Dr. Sibiri also mentioned the uh, rosiamonas uh, uh, spray-on type of, of, of transplant, if you will, and that's very exciting too. And then I just want to talk a one second about nerve endings, and this is so important because we know there are so many pieces of itch. Part of itch is psychological. We think that's part of the reason why people feel much more itchy at night when their mind is quiet and peaceful. Part of itch, though, is very physiologic, and what's fascinating is if you look at the nerve endings in patients with atopic dermatitis, they are very different. They have a much lower threshold for signaling itch, but the dendritic pattern is totally different, and that that takes time to get back to normal. So one of the things I talk to my patients about is we need to get you under control for several months, you know, usually two or three months of not having bad flare-ups to get things to settle back down. And what I find is that if we can keep them clear for a long enough period, we can enter into a state of remission or relative remission, not cure by any stretch, but we can get them out of those bad cycles. And the problem is if you treat with a seven-day course of prednisolone, you knock it down for a second, but all this structure is still there. So that hypersensitivity, that, that easy low threshold for itch is not going to disappear. So that's a little bit of some of the, the basic things. Now I'm going to turn it back over to Dr. Tom to take us through some steroid sparing options. Okay, so we're going to talk now about some of the pharmacologic options with it too. So in terms of different areas that people have done work on, so some have tried to come up with some uh, 
pharmacologic uh, barrier repair therapies, so where you're trying to actually replace some of those defective proteins and lipids that are there in the skin. So initial formulations were mostly hydrolipids, and then as they realized that, that uh, ceramides were decreased um, and the ratio of ceramides was also decreased, there's been formulations based on that, as well as some that have added um, filigran breakdown products as well too. But how well do they work? So I think overall we know that in, in studies they've done better than their own vehicles, and so they can be adjuvant treatments. They do lessen itch. They can lessen some of the dryness, increase the hydration, and allow you to not use as much of the topical steroids or the calcineurin inhibitors. Um, but they're certainly much more costly. You can see that in your book relative to your over-the-counter uh, moisturizers. And so how these, do these do head-to-head? There's not been a lot of uh, direct studies, but on the few studies that have been done between these prescription-based um, barrier repair therapies, um, they haven't done better than over-the-counter moisturizers. Um, and even a Cochrane review didn't find one superior. So I think you know, if people are looking for alternative ones, they can't tolerate the ones they've been using or they want others you know, that are reasonable that they have access to, I think these are agents that can help, but they don't necessarily do more than what your traditional um, over-the-counter emollients would do. And was already, you know, discussed about, you know, we are looking for steroid-sparing alternatives because there are some true side effects we need to be careful about. I think everybody knows um, about skin atrophy and being careful with it. And especially for young babies, but even for older kids, we do have to watch quantity and potency as well because you can get HPA axis suppression. And then sometimes even the skin, you can see steroid-induced acne and rosacea um, as well. But I think the bigger issue that we're faced too is the problems in, and what our parents and our, 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 our patients come to us with, right? There's a lot of steroid phobia out there. Even if we are carefully using them and not seeing side effects, parents want to look for alternatives. There's been big movements about whether there's such things as steroid addiction or withdrawal, um, which could be an entire lecture by itself. You know, I think, again, we don't think it necessarily causes atopic dermatitis, but you do need to be careful with use. Um, and then the actual problems that we're faced, which is, you know, how do we manage this chronic disease and not necessarily continuing to use steroids over and over again. But that often is, you know, how we start, which is, like I said, you clear them first by using, you know, one to two week course of, of, of low and mid-potency topical steroids. Um, usually that would be all you would need for a younger child. And then you would try to look and try to insert some non-steroidal options in between. Okay. And of course, the, the, the classes we've had, you know, uh, next class for almost 15 years now, topical tacrolimus and pimacrolimus. So these um, decreased cytokines like IL-2. Um, what's limited some of our use has been the black box warning, right, that there's an unclear risk, if they're, uh, unclear if there's any risk in terms of cancer associated with use. Now, a lot of long-term 10-year studies have shown and that we have not seen increased risks for cancers, including lymphomas, as long as they're used properly, which is, you know, limited amounts, not every day. Um, we haven't seen increased risk and use for it. So I do think they have a role. Um, For example, for areas of thin skin like the face, the neck, and the folds. Or again, if you're using and cycling through topical steroids a lot, it's good to insert them in between once they're calm. So this is, you know, where you could use it. So for a kid where the disease comes back again, not as bad, but pretty quickly, you can consider inserting them in in between. Um, and this has kind of been demonstrated. So we've, you know, always learned and kind of used the two week on treatment, two weeks off of treatment. But what we've realized is that a lot of times you have to be a little bit more proactive, especially in sites where the disease comes back quickly. And this is called being more proactive. And that's treating with some type of topical anti-inflammatory two to three times a week. 
um, instead of every day. So you hit, you know, maybe it's the antecubular popliteal fossa or the hands that tend to get it pretty uh, quickly. There you would treat, like I said, every two or three days. And that's been shown that it actually can reduce the number of flares and the amount of treatments that they actually use if you are more proactive in this manner. Um, and why this might help, part of it is because even though you look on the skin and it looks like it's a lot better, there's usually still some inflammation there. And biopsies have actually been done where they actually show that even when it looks like it's gotten much better, it's the skin is still not back to normal. And so it's not that unusual that it could come back. And so typically, you know, a management approach is first to go ahead and induce the remission, you know, one to two weeks generally, not more than about three, using the topical steroids, and then use, you know, can maintain control of disease. If they can do emollients alone, that's great. If not, twice weekly, either topical steroids um, or topical calcineurin inhibitors inserted in there, and then rescue the flares as needed. Now, we do have, as mentioned, one more set of uh, pharmacologic anti-inflammatory treatments, and that is crisoboral, which is a phosphodiesterase inhibitor. And this was actually known quite some time ago, and that's that uh, the PD4 enzyme is actually really overactive in atopic dermatitis skin. Um, and it's active in the T cells, and it leads to all these uh, molecules being released that then leads to inflammation in the skin. So if you block that, that, that enzyme, the PD4 enzyme, you can dampen the inflammation and help improve um, and decrease uh, the activity in the skin. And so these were studies that were done in the last few years, you know, showing that uh, cytokines like IL-2, TNF-alpha, IL-5 was much, much uh, dampened with it. And the studies were in uh, kids as well as adults with atopic dermatitis two years and above. So two big phase three studies were done um, in over 1,000 patients. And what they showed was compared to vehicle, um, he had about a 12 to 15% uh, of subjects actually got to clear or almost clear, which is actually quite good um, from being mild to moderate disease. And then also quite a number of subjects also had improved itch as well too. So this is just some of the clinical photos that show some of the improvement you can see. Now, you do get some application site reactions, so there can be burning and stinging, just like what we would see with the topical calcineurin inhibitors. So again, I think it's better when it's mild or when you've calmed down the inflammation. Um, but there has been no data that shows any atrophy or had pigmentary changes as a result from it. And overall, you know, there were no real increased systemic risk um, from using this topical treatment. So I think, you know, and we can go over this in discussion as well, too, for debate is, you know, where and when would we start to use some of these agents in it? You know, do we use it similarly as steroid-sparing agents, too? Um, some of the other, you know, practicalities of using these is how best to mitigate stinging, as I mentioned. So some people, like I said, it's best pre-treat first with topical steroids, get the inflammation down, and then insert these. Some people like to refrigerate the topicals, and that helps to cool it. Some people mix it with an emollient, which would dilute it a little bit, but also lessen the stinging. Um, and then I think, you know, one big question a lot of us has is what about use in very young children? Those are the ones where the parents really are coming to us trying to get non-steroidal alternatives. And so all I can say is there's a phase four study that's been completed that I think we're all waiting for the results for crisoboral to see what happens. But this is where I could see, you know, um, uh, an area where, where definitely there is a need for other alternatives. More clear, I think, is that, and which is nice, is that we now do have an effective drug for the severe refractory patient. So these are kids, adolescents, who really have gone through years and, you know, multiple uh, 
trials of a lot of different topicals, sometimes phototherapy, sometimes even oral immunosuppressants, and yet they still have had you know, very significant life-impacting disease affects school, affects quality of life. Um, and we finally have had you know, now an approved agent to help treat these patients, and that is dupilumab, um, which was approved for age 12 and above earlier this year. So what it is, is it's a monoclonal antibody. So it's an antibody against um, the alpha subunit um, for the interleukin-4 receptor. And so what it does is it blocks IL-4 and 13, which you heard about earlier is very key and important in both inflammation as well as target, uh, interacts with the skin barrier with it. So it was approved initially for adults two years ago in 2017, and then earlier this year for those 12 and above. And ongoing trials um, are uh, happening uh, for those who are less than age 12, so we're hoping that with the, the indications, if the data supports it, will go down um, for, to younger age groups, as well as for some of the other um, atopic conditions that we mentioned earlier. But just to show some of the data, so this is comparing adults versus adolescents in the trials. Um, and so what they found was in the two big adult trials, about 50% um, of subjects had at least a 75% improvement uh, in, their, in their eczema severity. Um, and just as many of them went from moderate to severe to, again, clear or almost clear. So this is much better than what we've seen with any of our traditional agents. For the adolescent studies, it was a little bit less. We didn't quit, hit quite as much um, efficacy with them, um, but still it was a good 40%, you know, relative to, to 8 to 10% of placebo. So still quite a number uh, improved. So the other thing that was shown is that itch decreases and actually quite dramatically as well. So in the, in the adolescent subjects, 37% um, uh, of the subjects had decreased itch, at least four points on the severity scale versus only 5% of placebo. So now, like I said, it's been approved for 12 and above. For those that are more than 60 kilograms, um, the dose is the same as, as, as adult dosing. So it's one 600 milligram loading dose and then a 300 milligram injection every other week. Um, for kids who weigh less than that, it's 400 and 200. So it's not too bad. It is every two weeks to do that. And this is just one of my patients, you know, who had been, been treated before um, uh, with phototherapy who had still pretty persistent disease. And you can see this is after four weeks first of dupilumab on the top set of pictures. And then he only had really occasional papules after 10 months of dupilumab. So it certainly helped us to be able to treat some of our more severe cases as well as now kind of visit, you know, should we really actually not wait until kids are this severe for this long? Should we intervene earlier? So in summary, as we know, it's a complex condition, needs multimodal management, but we're certainly chipping away and you're hearing about some of these now already available agents that we have. And then I'll let Dr. Sidbury talk about some of the upcoming agents that are in trials at this point. So as you're getting postprandial and sleepy, what better to wake you up than clinical trials? <laughs> oh yeah. All right. Well, what I think, I'm not going to kill you with it, I promise. But what I will say is just that we've kind of come full circle, haven't we? Because we started off by saying, you know, we've, we've been in an age of really hopelessness for the majority of adult patients with atopic dermatitis lives. And here we're talking about some other options. Just to frame that, from the year 2000, when I finished fellowship, to the year 2017, 17 years, how many new molecules do you think there were approved for the treatment of atopic dermatitis, topical or systemic? One, you are way over. That would be zero. 
<laughs> yeah, I know. You thought you were underselling, weren't you? You were not. Zero. Not a one. In the last two years, from 2017 to today, you've already heard about two. The topical crisoberol, topical phosphodiesterase inhibitor, and the systemic dupilumab. So for years and years, the three of us have been taking care of patients with atopic dermatitis and patients with psoriasis. We'll see a patient in one room with psoriasis and we'll be saying, well, God, we've got this biologic, that biologic, 10 more down the road. We've got all these things to offer you. We go next door to the patients with atopic dermatitis and there's that zero that we just talked about. And that's changing, finally. And here's how it's changing. Look at this uh, uh, graphic here. So this is a wonderful, if you're ever interested in keeping up with all of these new treatments for atopic dermatitis, and I know you are, if you go to that bottom uh, website, the National Eczema Association, a wonderful, wonderful, wonderful advocacy group uh, for your parents and your patients, they have this research uh, tab that you can click, and that's basically what this is generated from. And you can go in and say, okay, what are all the agents in phase one or beyond? What are all the agents in phase two or beyond? I don't even do that very often. I'm more like, what's phase three or beyond? What are we really maybe going to be able to offer folks pretty soon? And if you look here, this is phase two or beyond. But look at this, phase two or beyond topicals, just a whole list, orals, a whole list. And these, this is not a complete list. Phase two or beyond, I think they're like 13 injectables. Phase two or beyond for atopic dermatitis, a similar number of orals. So this is just a brand new day for the treatment of atopic dermatitis, which I think is really exciting for all of us. And this is where I'm not going to bore you to tears because these aren't ready yet. You don't need to know them except I guess one of your post-test questions is one, so I might just emphasize, I don't know, one slide more than another. Uh, but these are the topicals. Uh, Delgacitinib, there are studies looking at topical JAK inhibitors. JAK inhibitors are a fascinating molecule. Um, they're not just that interesting for atopic dermatitis. We all have patients with uh, alopecia areata, right? I'm sure you see patients with alopecia areata. There was a clinical trial for psoriasis of an oral JAK inhibitor for psoriasis, not atopic dermatitis, adults only. A number of those patients with psoriasis had alopecia areata, areata as well as their psoriasis. They were going because they had psoriasis. They wanted to be in a clinical trial and take this oral JAK inhibitor. Lo and behold, they started growing hair on this oral JAK inhibitor. And it is not uh, an accident. It has now been shown that oral JAK inhibitors are a really exciting treatment for alopecia areata. We, of course, dermatologists, we try anything topically, so we're trying topical JAK inhibitors for alopecia areata. But just to say, this JAK pathway is a really fascinating one, which you're going to hear a lot more about. This tapenorov, how do you pronounce that? Tapenorov, it drives me crazy when I don't know how to pronounce something. Tapenorov. This is a topical agent, which I think is going to be a thing for you fairly shortly. And what's really interesting is, you know, we've kind of compared atopic dermatitis and psoriasis all night long, right? One of, the t one of my teachers for atopic dermatitis, John Hannafin, there's a, have you guys heard of a product called Calcipatriene? The brand name is Dovinex. Slap my hand for the CME people. Um, so if you've heard of Dovinex, um, topical vitamin D for psoriasis, right? John Hanfman used to tell me, if you're not sure if it's atopic dermatitis or psoriasis, put Dovinex on it. If it gets better, it's psoriasis. If it gets worse, it's atopic dermatitis. A lot of the things that you use for psoriasis don't necessarily work for atopic dermatitis other than topical steroids. This is one that probably will work for both. It functions the same way coal tar functions. And coal tar is something that we've used for psoriasis for years. 
And you can see here that it actually generates those ceramides that Dr. Tom was talking about are, that are missing in the barrier. So keep an eye on this one. It's, it's one that we're pretty excited about. Other topical phosphodiesterase inhibitors other than the chrysoboral. So whenever you see something that's just a number and not even a name yet, move on. Oral JAK inhibitors. This might come up again in a post-test question. I'm not sure. Um, I can't remember what the answer was. But um, abrocitinib is an oral JAK inhibitor that's being studied for atopic dermatitis. Baricitinib, an oral JAK inhibitor studying for atopic dermatitis. And upas that one. Um, <laughs> another one for, for atopic dermatitis. So systemic injections, lebrakizumab, we talked about dupilumab, the one that is available down to 12 years of age for atopic dermatitis. It's been life-altering for a number of my patients. Lebrakizumab just knocks off one of those. So instead of IL-4 and IL-13, it's just IL-13. But it's the same idea, and it's really exciting to this point. Nemolizumab, some people call IL-31 the itch cytokine. So nemolizumab targets that itch cytokine. You heard with diagnosis kind of coming full circle with, with Dr. Tom. A good question to ask yourself if you're ever thinking that something's eczema but you're not sure. If it doesn't itch, think about something else. We talk about diagnostic criteria, yada, yada, all these things. If it doesn't itch, think about something else. Atopic dermatitis itches. And if you have a treatment that doesn't address the itch, it's a lousy treatment for atopic dermatitis. So coming to a cytokine near you, they're just a, you name it, um, there's something that, to block it these days. Um, so it's really exciting. That's the net up shot. And with that, I will close. And we'll talk about cases in, in kind of what I want to do. We've now got, I think, the appropriate amount of time to do question and answer. Or if you guys are just ready to go to bed, so be it. But we would be happy to take questions, any, any of the three of us. And if you will not insult any of us if you get up and leave, it's late. Fill out your evaluations and send them in so you get your CME credit because it would be a crime if you don't. Please. So um, recently that we've been um, with the newborns not bathing them immediately, and there was mention of, um, you know, moisturizing immediately the, ch the babies. I'm wondering if you've seen any difference in if there's been any study in the atopic development versus now that we're not, you know, washing them immediately, if there's been any change or studies. Yeah, so I'll let others comment as well. I don't think that evidence is there, certainly. I think the delayed bathing has all the benefits that the WHO is, is purporting, and so I, don't, I, I kind of separate those to the study that was referred to um, out of Oregon, and there's been another study also not super large in Japan, kind of coming to that same conclusion, uh, but we're waiting on that BEEP trial for the definitive answer started, I think, at like up to three weeks of age. I think they had to start the moisturization. So not within hours, but, but up to three weeks of age, they could start and enroll in that trial. But it's a great question because that's such a dynamic period we're learning all about. Okay, yes, question. <laughs> dot, dot, dot. Uh, <laughs> So the question, if you didn't hear uh, on the other side of the room, in my opening statement, I mentioned that I use atopic dermatitis and eczema synonymously, and he had to call me on that. Uh, and here, I'll just tell you, it's a mess, isn't it? So if you, so pure, if you wanted to be a purist, the best thing to do talking about this patient population we're discussing today would be use the term atopic dermatitis. The reason that becomes a mess is because 20% of patients with atopic dermatitis don't have elevated IgE. They don't have uh, all of the hallmarks of that atopic march, so it's sort of non-atopic 
atopic dermatitis, right? And so there's got to be this term to capture them as well. Well, eczema, you know, seborrheic dermatitis is a form of eczema, cradle cap. Allergic contact dermatitis is a form of eczema. So that's a bit of a mess. You would think we would do a better job of sorting this out. I'll tell you there's a group called the International Eczema Council. That sounds all hoity-toity, doesn't it? A, a, a global assortment of people who claim to have expertise in eczema. There was a question that went out. Can we please settle on a name? After thread and back and forth and bitter things, I just was reading these emails with accents and wondering who sang them, and, and they, were, they were, it was unbelievable. And at the end of the day, there was no progress whatsoever. So the bottom line is, I think the, the key thing to take home is be clear with your parents when you're describing what it is, because if they're wondering about allergic contact dermatitis and atopic dermatitis, they are two different things, but they both might, most, both might be called types of eczema. So you can use them synonymously and no one will wrap your knuckles. So I've heard one of the big concerns or side effects with carisoparol, yeah, I'm, I'm there with you, you. Um, was stinging and burning application site. So how much of that is due to actual open skin and how much stinging and burning do you have on like for the most part intact skin? Because I have some people who are really hesitant because they've heard horror things on the internet about, you know, their hand feels like it's on fire for hours kind of thing. Yeah. Dr. Tom, you want yeah. to take that? You know, so you I have to stand up here. Are you doing your thing? Is this yeah. On, okay? Yeah. So I will say that you do see burning site applications, and we saw that even in the studies before it it, it came out. I do think the more inflamed and more broken the skin is, the more you'll see it because even other things will sting beyond it. But that's why I think it's a better place to use it once you get them the inflammation down and use it in lieu of it, or if it's mild disease that's not broken up. Or I will, like I said, I actually do have some parents, I'll say mix it with a little bit of plain petrolatum or something. So you kind of, you're diluting it a little bit, but you're also taking out some of the stinging factor for it. But I do, I do think it's something that you actually should proactively warn people and have these measures ahead if you want to use it successfully. That's been kind of my, my what I've seen clinically when we've used it. Peter? I totally agree. So yeah, that, I referenced going to an advisory board earlier, and that was what—that was the whole point of the advisory board. Was this company has this product, which we're all theoretically really excited about. It's non-steroidal; it goes down to two. It doesn't have a black box warning. My goodness, how exciting is that? And yet, you put it on, and your face explodes. That's not as exciting. So we were trying to figure out how to 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 make that kind of square that circle, because in the studies, and our site was one, it was four percent, right? Four point four percent versus one percent in the vehicle. One out of 20, more or less, that's not so bad. In real life, there was, there was just a study in the American Academy of Dermatology Journal, the Blue Journal, where on the face in this adult population, there were like 50, 60 people, 50%. So it's, and I think that's too high. I think 4% is too low, but it's clearly enough that, as Dr. Tom mentioned, sort of staying ahead of it and saying, hey, because we, we all know that if we take care of kids, and there's a red tube, and that burns, that red tube, the parent, there's no way that red, red tube is ever getting used again. And so if you prepare them for it, and if there's open skin, proactively treat with topical steroids. You don't need these non steroidal treatments to get patients clear. You heard Dr. Leo talk about, we've got tools for that. You need them to stay clear safely. So pre-treat them, get them better, get them clear, and the second something starts coming back, 
that's when you use the non-steroidals. It still may sting. And then maybe refrigerating, maybe mixing with a steroid, with an emollient. But as Dr. Tom said, that dilutes it. And then, you know, the pharmacodynamics aren't as clear. But there, there are all these issues. But I, I agree with your premise that the, the more open the skin, the more the stinging. Hi. Yeah, you mentioned the use of uh, topical coconut oil as an emollient uh, a couple of times a day because of its anti-inflammatory properties and antimicrobial properties. I've had some concern in the past over um, introducing a food product topically. You, you also um, touched on that. Um, um, is there any concern that um, use of this um, widely might increase the risk of actual coconut allergy and um, also, you know, some topical products have almond oils. I've um, in the past steered away from those. And um, you also mentioned some, I think, sunflower seed oil today. So could, could you speak to um, concern for food allergy later on? Yeah, sure. Yeah. So I think the theoretical risk is real that, that by putting foods on our skin, we can transcutaneously sensitize. It turns out that the oils we've talked about probably have among the lowest risk of doing that, in part because they are processed in a way that there's very little protein. And what we're sensitizing to is to the protein. So I wouldn't take coconut meat and rub it on the skin. That's high in protein. But the oil is actually quite cosmetically elegant and has been used culturally for you know, thousands of years. You can actually find uh, in the tropics and different parts of the world, coconut oil is a staple of skincare. And it doesn't seem like people sensitize to it very much. It's actually a fairly rare allergen. And in my experience with pretty allergic people who have you know kind of everything positive, they're mostly able to use it pretty well. You can, of course, become allergic to anything, including methyl parabens and cocomethylpropylbetaine, all the things we have in regular products. So I don't think it's anything special. Um, and we also know, for example, some of the products contain peanut oil, uh, particularly one, there's one steroid that has peanut oil based. Similarly, we're okay to use that even in peanut allergic patients because, again, there's no protein. So I feel pretty good about it, although you're right. As a general rule, we kind of want to keep food separated from the skin. Witness anything to add to that as far as the coconut oil discussion? No, I mean, I think it's the same thing. I think you have to yeah. find the right product that has yeah. it broken down. Great. I have another question. I a comment on the coconut oil. I find that I've promoted that, or when families have, I'm from the West Coast, above you in uh, Vancouver. Um, and uh, I find it doesn't create a good barrier though, so often I'll recommend to put on the, the coconut oil and then put on a thicker emollient. Um, but my question pertains more to the hypopigmentation that we see as a post-inflammatory hyper-hypopigmentation. And oftentimes I do a lot of educating around um, that it's not necessarily the medication you're putting on, but the family forgets that, you know, even though they put on a rash, they, the last thing they remember is the medication, and therefore that's a deterrent for them to put on. In your experience, or I haven't seen literature, but or if you've seen the literature, um, because certainly families will Google the side effects of topical steroids, and yes, that can be a side effect is hypopigmentation, but I truly feel it's post-inflammatory. So what is the percentage or prevalence, you know, truly from the topical steroid? and not from the inflammation. I, I think it's quite, quite rare. In, in my experience, when you really see pigmentary alteration from steroids, it's often depigmentation. Mm -hmm. So we'll often yes. see that people get like a joint injection of a steroid and they get like vitiligo mm -hmm. over that joint. So I think you're right, probably 95 plus percent is really just pityriasis, all of our post-inflammatory mm -hmm. hypopigmentation from the eczema. And I just try to reassure the families um, that this is normal and it's gonna go away. So I think if we just said, let's just keep on top of things, let's get the skin better, I don't think it's from this, but I'm always saying to them too, we're trying to minimize our steroid use anyway, so that's where our non-steroidals come into play. I'm like, yes, we're only gonna use that as we need, we're gonna go go well. And I often give them the handout about P. alba, and mm -hmm. say, these are kids who came in yeah. with no steroid use, and then they go, oh yeah, it does look like what I'm seeing here. So I think that's 
that's a good way to present it. Okay, that's reassuring then. Okay, mm -hmm. thank you. And I would just add to that part of my counsel in terms of trying to get parents comfortable with topical steroids because we've talked about topical steroid phobia. You live in Crunchyville like I do. It's, it's a huge thing. Um, so it can be a barrier to kids getting better. And they come back and they're no better. And we're like, oh gosh, you need a stronger steroid. And if it's steroid phobia that they haven't articulated, that's the exact opposite thing that you want to do. And so what I'll do kind of in my first counsel about using topical steroids is I'll say, just so when can you use the steroids? Well, you heard about, you know, half the week, et cetera, et cetera. Great. You can sort of impose these time limits. But you can also give parents really tangible ways to keep it safe that they're kind of in control of and that they own, one of which I just call the touch test, and that was a John Hannafin thing. And if they can't touch, if they can't feel it, if they look away, they can't feel the rash, it's not red and it doesn't itch, meaning like post-inflammatory hypopigmentation, just moisturize it. And if they can feel it, if it's itchy, if it's red, then a topical steroid. So you've got the time, you've got the touch test, and then I'll also sort of say, okay, what is thinning of the skin? Because that's really what everybody's worried about. Absorption, HP axis suppression, suppression is really uncommon. So I'll just describe for them. Thinning of the skin is at, at its first, I'll sort of describe, especially in babies, because that's usually where parents are most worried, Every baby has a vein that you can see right here, right? Every single baby. They've never put steroids there, so the vein is there. And the veins are here too, but they're too big. That's not what I want. I want ones that are just really subtle and they, you have to sort of strain your eyes. You're like, oh yeah, that's a vein. And so I say, look at that. If you start seeing that here or that here where you hadn't seen them before, maybe that's the first sign of thinning. Stop, guess what? Totally reversible. If you, if you don't notice that, you keep treating. No one ever told you to look for that. You keep treating. You guys are probably all too young. You don't have the benefit of a senile thinning, this sort of cigarette paper wrinkling uh, from atrophy. That's reversible if you cause it from steroids. And I show them that, and they say, you're not going to miss that, right? They're like, oh, God, no. So, <laughs> so they, they know that that thinning is reversible. Then I will say, very importantly at the end, if you treat through that, you get a stretch mark. That's a scar. I do not want you to lose your realization that this is a medicine that can cause a side effect. You can just own that side effect and intervene before it's a bell you can't unring. And that just gives them the power to know that five years down the road, they're not going to be like, oh my God, why did I treat with that when it was going to go away? Yeah, so colloidal oatmeal as opposed to coconut oil, is it in fashion, is it not? Like Aveeno makes it a, co a colloidal oatmeal uh, product. I find, I'll, I'll, um, I'll defer to Dr. Leo and Dr. Tom, but I, I find those are soothing for some. So put them in the bath and they feel really good. They don't really have any therapeutic properties. Now the bleach bath therapeutic properties, Dr. Leo has called into question here, um, but they do seem to be more effective in terms of acti actively having an anti-inflammatory property and effect as opposed to just feeling good. So I, I do use them and if parents say, I'm using the colloidal oatmeal, is that okay? Absolutely. And they're in a lot of products, of course. One of the interesting things is that the FDA will allow any company who puts a certain percentage of colloidal oatmeal in their product to actually put eczema on their label, which is why if you go to the drugstore and you look any product that has a big, you know, such and such brand for eczema, you'll look at the back and they put very bold colloidal oatmeal because that's all you need to do for the FDA monographs. Mm -hmm. That's why it's commonly used. Mm -hmm. 
Yeah, I mean, I would agree. It's, it's. I think if you can get a product that your your patient will use that doesn't sting, that when they touch it, they're willing to use it several times a day, and you can feel the emollient, then that's the emollient of choice with it. It's just a matter of which one they'll they'll pick. But that's that's you know. Any other questions? Yes. Are there any study like pregnant women taking a lot of peanuts and then their baby Mm -hmm. So questions, uh, I, think, I think Dr. Tom alluded a little bit to the peanut in pregnancy or pregnancy diet, but the question if you didn't hear studies of pregnant women eating a lot of peanuts and that having an effect on the outcome of their child having eczema or not, there's really nothing that's shown uh, a, a result of manipulating a maternal diet either before pregnancy or during breastfeeding that has changed the outcome of eczema yet. Right, anything else to add to that? Right, right, right. Yeah, fifty-four percent of my patients are Medicaid, so I can't. Afford it. Yeah. So the question, if you didn't hear, was just. Yeah. For sure. What's the next step when you have a patient who you're kind of doing everything like we've talked about? They're bathing and moisturizing properly, doing bleach baths, trimcinolone, and yet still not clearing. What's next? Um, First thing I think is we, we want to make sure that, that they're actually doing it, right? Mm -hmm. So the adherence piece, if we've confirmed that. Second thing, we want to confirm the diagnosis. Are we missing something? Is the scabies in disguise? Is this a nutritional deficiency? Is there something really bizarre? If we're pretty confident that it is, then I think we, we graduate on the next step of that little step stool. So now we're at systemic treatment. So we're going to talk about light therapy uh, or the conventional immunosuppressants or maybe even dupilumab, which is I'm able to get a comfort for my Medicaid patients if I can show, look, we've done a number of things and we're still still suffering, they're still, you know, or they're in trouble because potentially if they're using that much triamcinolone, do you really see they're refilling it month after month, you're saying, wait a minute, this is not good for you. Now, now you do have the potential for systemic absorption and so on. Although I might do a test first, you know, do a couple weeks of a high potency topical steroid and wet reps, like give them a set amount of 45, you know, that you are comfortable giving with no refills, have them follow up because you want to get a sense, can you actually knock it out? or not with it. And that gives us a better way to, to, to push forward for the next steps of there. But if you continue the cycle, then it gets to see. Yeah. Thank you. Right, right. Yeah. Right. So don't abandon and the moisturizer. Yeah. Without steroids, you could do it with moisturizers alone. Or soak and smear was another way. It's just you smear stuff as soon as you step out of the shower actually can help too. And the only other thing I'll add to the differential that Peter gave is contact dermatitis because sometimes uh, friends can be foes. And so you heard an earlier mention about coconut, uh, or excuse me, almond oil in certain products. Cetaphil cream, lovely moisturizer, use it all the time. It has almond oil in it. So certain time, parabens you heard Peter mention. So that's, and those are tougher to suss out. You can be even allergic to the steroid itself. So they're, they're, that's one to keep in mind as well. So please. You know, you're all academic. Um, how readily available is light therapy in a routine dermatology office? 
I'm a private practitioner. Actually, okay. I have an affiliation. Oh, sorry, with a private sorry. Office, and it's very readily available. Any big dermatology office will have Should at least have one that. unit because we use it so much for psoriasis, and it's almost always covered by insurance for that. And most of the time, I would say for atopic dermatitis too. So just as so long as it's a big, big enough group, a real small office with one provider might not. But if there's a few dermatologists, thanks. I will say I, I'm at Seattle Children's Hospital. We do not have light therapy, so I'm, I'm there with you. At, so we send them around the, across the pond, across the way to uh, the adult folks, but those are our academic colleagues in dermatology. Not all adult dermatologists are Peter Leo and are willing to treat kids with light therapy. So I think access is a huge issue in addition to cost and convenience and all the things that were referenced earlier. Do you guys have it? We have it, yeah. uh, so we're lucky enough. I think you know the other thing is, if you can show that it works in the office, you can sometimes get them to approve of a home light box because you then have to just grapple with terms, hey, between somebody who's flaring who's going to be admitted and a therapy that actually they could do at home, now you have to obviously monitor and guide them with it. It's doable as well. That's another option. Well, I think the clock has struck 8.30. Thank you so much for sticking out with us.